Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. The world is a morally polluted place and the world makes us morally polluted. And we have to be careful to not carry that pollution from the world into our homes. You know, coming home is like coming into the tabernacle over there. Oh, tabernacle. You go to the tabernacle, go to the far end. When you enter into the tabernacle, when a person would enter into the tabernacle and they pull back the drape to go into the tabernacle, the very first thing they see is the laver. The laver, go next door, don't go now, go later, <laughs> and look at it. Look at it for yourself, just take a little time, just go there and just go look at that, and look at that laver, because before a priest could enter into the tabernacle, he had to first go visit the laver, he had to first go wash at the laver. That's very symbolic, that's very symbolic. It's a recognition that the world outside the tabernacle is polluted and polluting and that a priest might destroy the purity of the tabernacle unless he washed first at the laver, you know? So that's how we should view our homes. Our homes are like the tabernacle. And like the priest who had to protect the purity of the tabernacle by washing at the laver, we need to realize that with the moral pollution that we get exposed to every day we're out in the world, we can very easily pollute our homes. Just leave your muddy shoes at the door. Right When you come home, don't go traping all over the house with your muddy shoes. Leave them at the door. Now, naturally, the problem is we are not morally clean inside. And so that we easily become in unclean from the world. When the world's uncleanness, it hits a cord of resonance inside of us. We need spiritual cleansing as we enter our homes. You know, it'd be a great thing. It would be a great thing is right inside the door of our house, if we had a little room, a little prayer room, and we called it the labor room. And right off the front door, labor room. And when we would come home from a day being in the world, we just would slip into that room. And there on this room, we would see 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In case you know, if you didn't know, I like Bible verse plaques. We got one here, at least a few of them. But you come to my house, there are 30 of them. They're all over the place. My friend Don Ailes came over to my house and he said, you're missing an important one. He made another one for me so I could put it up, okay. <laughs> so, all right. And in that labor room, I put that verse on the wall, First John 1, 9. Fess sins, faithful and just, forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I put another verse in there. I put a verse of 2 Corinthians 7, 1. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. It would read, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And then I put another Bible verse plaque there. I put in Psalm 51.10 that David said after he sinned with Bathsheba, he said, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. 
I put another verse in there, Proverbs 30, verse 12. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. And then I put up Psalm 119.9. How can we not have Psalm 119.9? Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. I'd have Isaiah 116 in there, Isaiah 116. Wash you and make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. I'd put Ezekiel 1831 up there. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit for why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 36, I'd put that one up there. Ezekiel 36, 25. Ezekiel 36, 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you. A new spirit will I put within you. I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you should keep my judgments and do them. And then I for sure would have Isaiah 118 in there, God's invitation, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, saith the Lord, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I'd have Matthew 5.8 up there. Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Matthew 12.33, which is kind of like an ultimatum verse, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. The tree is known by its fruit. I'd have James 4.8 up there. James 4.8, draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 1 Peter 1.22, we have to have 1 Peter 1.22, seeing you have purified yourselves in obeying the truth to the Spirit. And 1 John, oh, 1 John. 1 John's got so many verses. I already told you about 1 John 1, 9. Back up to two more verses, 1 John 1, 7. 1 John 1, 7. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 3, 3. 1 John 3, 3. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And Jeremiah 4.14, Jeremiah 4.14, O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness that thou mayest be saved. How long shall I vain thoughts lodge within thee? Now at that point, there's no more wall space. The whole the walls are covered with Bible plaques. But I would try to find some. And I would just go into that room and just think about those verses. What's the point of all this? The point of the labor room is that we have to realize that when we come from the world polluted, morally, spiritually polluted, when we arrive home, we have to clean up with confession, with reading the word, with understanding the value, the cleansing value of the word, John 15, 3, John 15, 3, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. John 17, 7, John 17, 7, sanctify, which means make you clean. Sanctify them, make them clean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Ephesians 5, 26, speaking about how Christ also loved the church, gave himself for it, that he might sanctify, make it clean, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. So a home is a place of rest if it's kept pure. If it's kept pure from moral pollution, and we need to wash it off. That's why I said, leave the muddy shoes at the door. Wash it off by reading the word, confessing to God the sins of that day. But there's a second threat against purity in the home, and that is, that comes through technology. It used to be radio, but now it's television, now it's internet. These are the Trojan horses the devil uses to morally pollute our homes from within. And we have to be very careful, guard the purity of the home by what we listen to, by what we watch, because that comes straight, it doesn't even go through the door. Straight into the homes, through the cable, through the airwaves. Now, Naomi said 
that a home should be a place of rest. And a home is a place of rest if it's a place where God is happy to be there. The Lord Jesus Christ was really happy to go to the house of Lazarus. That was like a refreshing place for him. He relaxed there. It was great. God is happy to be in a home when a home is a place where God's Bible is read, where it's meditated on. He's happy to be in a home when a home is a place where music is God-honoring. It's not assaulting. It's not tense music with lyrics that are polluting. God is happy to be in a home when a home is a place of prayer, when there's prayer that thanks God for what he's done, like we're just singing here. Prayer that worships God for who he is. Prayer that relies on God for the problems of life, the problems of the family, the members of the family. Prayer that trusts God for the unknown future, what's gonna happen in the future. Prayer for each member of the household where each person is individually loved. Each person is individually appreciated for who they are. Each person is individually listened to and each person is individually prayed for. That's a home where everyone is accepted and loved. That's a home that trusts in the Lord. That's a home that has been tented and fumigated and all the tension and anxiety are gone. That's the kind of home that God, that, that's God-centered, that God's happy to be in, and he makes that a home of rest. That's a home of rest, and that's the home where God is trusted, and that's the home that's described really by Psalm 146.5. Psalm 146.5. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Now, verse 14 in this chapter says, she lay at his feet until the morning. Now, this shows something very significant about Ruth. Ruth was very anxious. Well, in the first place, Ruth didn't want, Ruth just wanted to stay with Naomi. Now she's being pushed out to go marry Boaz. She didn't, certainly didn't want to go down to a threshing floor at night to Boaz and essentially ask him to marry her. And she only did it because she was pushed into it by Naomi. But Ruth knew that Naomi had her best interest and Naomi knew that Boaz would agree to become her husband. So this was already very nerve-wracking. But now, verse 12 just comes as a bombshell in the middle of all this. Verse 12 says, where Boaz says to Ruth, and now it's true that I am thy near kinsman. How be it? How be it? There is a kinsman nearer than I. What's he saying? He's saying, there's someone ahead of me in the line to marry you. <laughs> so in verse 12, Ruth has learned that she may be marrying some person she doesn't even know. You know, so she's gone from not wanting to get married in the first place, just stay with Naomi, to a fear of maybe marrying Boaz, to a terror to marrying somebody she doesn't even know. So we can understand, we can feel the fear and the terror. And so Boaz understood that too. And so Boaz said to her, and now my daughter, fear not, in verse 11. He said, fear not. So Boaz wants Ruth to be calm. And so he said to the beginning, you know, Tarry this night, in verse 13, tarry this night. And then Boaz repeated his call for Ruth to be calm, at the end of verse 13, lie down until the morning. We can imagine, you know, Ruth sitting and saying, lie down, <laughs> lie down, I'm in such a state of terror. And these are the first words of verse 14 are so important when it says, and she lay down at his feet until the morning. Showed Ruth completely trusted Boaz. Clearly, Boaz had the opportunity to take advantage of Ruth, but Boaz guarded both his purity and Ruth's purity, as well as both of their reputations, when he said in verse 14, let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. But there's something else that's going on here. There's something else that's going on with his instruction to let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Something beyond just keeping purity, keeping pure, something beyond just maintaining reputation. And okay, it's true. Boaz is not only beautifully protecting mutual reputations, there's something else that's very beautiful that Boaz is doing here. Clearly, Boaz loves Ruth and wants her very much 
to be his wife, especially she has, in essence, asked him to marry her. But there's something that Boaz loves more than Ruth. You know what that is? Boaz loves God more than Ruth. And there's something that Boaz wants more than Ruth. Boaz wants the will of God more than he wants Ruth. Boaz only wants Ruth if to have Ruth is God's will for Boaz. Boaz wants the will of God more than Boaz wants Ruth. So the beauty here that we see is that Boaz is not saying, I don't care what the will of God is, I want you. He's not doing that. He says, I don't care what the will of God is, I want Ruth. We should never say that. Never say that. I don't care what the will of God is, I want you fill it in. Here's how Boaz is saying that he wants the will of God more than he wants Ruth. Okay, clearly, like we said, Boaz wants Ruth, Ruth wants Boaz, but there's a problem, one problem. And as he said in verse 12, there is a kinsman that is nearer than I. So he wants Ruth, Ruth wants him, but there's just a person standing in the way between Boaz and Ruth, and that's the kinsman who's nearer, as he said. So Boaz has an opportunity here. He's got an opportunity to insert a little influence on this situation. Because here, you know, it's like when no one is looking, I'll just push the ball a little bit in the direction. No one's going to see it. Boaz can play just a little trick to sort of guarantee that Ruth becomes his and not this other man's. He's got this opportunity to make an influence that would sort of remove this other person standing in between him and Ruth. What's that? He knows that if it became known that Ruth was with Boaz overnight, that that would likely influence the decision of this near kinsman redeemer. He said, I don't want her. If it was known that Ruth spent the night with Boaz, then that would prejudice this other man. So he would look at Ruth and say, damaged goods, open goods. No. Boaz wanted the will of God more than he wanted Ruth. And Boaz realizes that if God wanted Ruth to be his wife, then God could work in the heart of this other man to refuse Ruth without him having any influence in, in this. So, so Boaz didn't want to have any influence over this man's decision. Boaz wanted this man's decision to be his free decision and not influenced by the knowledge that Ruth was with him overnight. And in that way, Boaz guaranteed that the other man's decision was going to be 100% from the Lord and not in any way influenced by the fact that with Boaz. So that's the underlying reason why Boaz gave this strong instruction of verse 14 when he said, let it not be known that a woman came into the house, he came into the floor. That's how Boaz, who is in love with Ruth, could say in verse 13, tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning that he, if he perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. That's how Boaz could say to Ruth, who he loved, you know, if he takes you for his wife, fine, well. How could it be well? How could it be well? Because it's well if it's the will of God. And what kept Boaz from the destruction and tension of the situation that he was going through were the simple words in verse 13. The Lord lives. The Lord's alive. God lives. God's not dead. He cares. He loves. So now we see Boaz doing something very strange. And Boaz looks at the veil that Ruth has, and he asks her, bring it to me. Bring it to me. And hold it out. In verse 15, and he said, bring the veil that is thou hast upon thee, hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley, laid it on her, and she went into the city. What's this all about? What's this all about, about the, the, the barley and the veil? It's very significant. This is actually a barley gift. And we find out two verses later what this is all about. See, in verse 17, it says, she said, now this is Ruth speaking to Naomi, 
These six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. So you see what's happening here is, when, is that when Boaz gives this barley to Ruth, Boaz is saying to Ruth, it's not for you, it's for your mother-in-law. <laughs> He's sending the barley to Naomi. The barley was a message to Ruth's mother-in-law. What was the message? What Boaz was saying with this barley was this, Naomi, you and I have known each other for too long for me not to see that you're behind this. You're behind pushing Ruth to me to become my wife. Naomi, I know you're behind all this Ruth coming to me at night. Well, Naomi, I've got a message for you about you sending Ruth to me to become my wife. This barley is my message to you, Naomi, and my message to you, Naomi, is I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate that you sent Ruth to become my wife. I'm grateful for you sending Ruth to become my wife. See, these six measures of barley here, that was a gift from Boaz to Naomi in which Boaz was expressing his appreciation, his gratitude to Naomi for her self-sacrificing love, her thoughtful love to be willing to part with Ruth so that she could have a home of rest and Boaz could have Ruth as his wife. That's what's going on here with this barley gift that, from Boaz to Naomi. It was a gift of appreciation and gratitude from Boaz to Naomi. Now we see that Ruth is now returning home, and Naomi greets Ruth in verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. Now you might be surprised with the question. I mean, there's Naomi, and she asked Ruth, Who art thou? You know, and maybe you're thinking, it's like a, who is it? You know, it's like, maybe it's too dark. And she said, who is it? She can't see. But that's not really the case. Why? Because you can see when you look at her full question when she said she came to her daughter-in-law in verse 16, she said, who art thou my daughter? Naomi knew that it was Ruth because she called her my daughter. Who out there my daughter? So she knows it's Ruth. And so that leaves the question, well, what is she asking? Who art thou my daughter? And the answer to the question, what she was asked, is seen from Ruth's response, Ruth's response to her in verse 16. And she told her all that the man had done to her. So, who art thou? She told her all that the man had done to her. So when Naomi asked Ruth, who art thou? Naomi's asking Ruth, what did Boaz do to you? Did Boaz make you his engaged bride? Did Boaz propose to you? Are you now Mrs. Boaz-to-be? You know? Who are you, Mrs. Boaz, or who are you, Mrs. Engaged to Boaz? That's the question here. That's what Naomi's really asking Ruth here when she says, you know, who art thou, my daughter? Then in the next verse, we see Ruth telling Naomi about the six measures of barley that Boaz sent to Naomi by the hand of Ruth, and six measures was about, about 10 gallons of barley. That's a considerable amount, 10 gallons of barley. You know that, Ruth, she was a strong woman. Okay, hey, by the way, you ever thought that the way we give to the Lord Jesus is to give to his people? You ever thought about that? You know, like the man who one time says, well, I, I got this big amount of money here and I'm gonna give it to God. So he throws it up in the air to God and it comes down. He says, well, you see, he wants me to keep it. <laughs> now, Naomi gives to Ruth a great advice, which is where we wanna come to now. In verse 18, then said she, sit still, my daughter. Until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest until he hath finished the thing this day. So Naomi knew, that's not easy. Sit still, sit still. And with all this tension going on, sit still. But she adds this word, my daughter. Sit still, my daughter. As if to say, I'm telling you, Ruth, from nothing else but a heart of love and concern for you. So let's be clear as to what Naomi was saying here when she said, sit still. 
Naomi was saying, just sit still. Don't give in to a restless anxiety. Don't take any other steps in the matter. Just wait. Set your heart at ease. Now, that's not easy to do. This last week, I had a little remote control, operated some lights, stopped working. I opened it up, found out why. Batteries had leaked acid, corrosion all over the inside. Ruined, had to replace it. That's a picture of what anxiety does to us. Leak corrosive acid, very corrosive. So what's Naomi saying to Ruth? She's saying to Ruth, you could sit still. Why? Because God's on the throne. All will be well. Because the hand of the Almighty is going to deal sweetly. Boy, that's so the opposite of the Naomi that we saw in chapter 1. When we looked at Naomi chapter 1, she said, chapter 1, verse 20, 120, 1 verse 20, and she said unto them, call me not Naomi, which means rest. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. The Lord brought me back home again empty. Why then call you me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. So when Naomi came back to, to Bethlehem here, Naomi had one message. Her message was bitterness. She said, God's dealt very bitterly with me, and now she's saying to Ruth just the opposite. She's saying God's going to be very sweet. Sit still has a basis, because the basis is in God. You know, sit still is, I hope you'll be lucky. You know, we don't have an Irish God, you know? Well, there's no, luck's not there to deal with this here. It's, we have an almighty God. And when you and I are in a very tense situation, and when we sit still, we're resting on the basis that God is good, and we believe God is good. You know why that man hid that talent in the ground and didn't make it work for God? Because he believed that God was a bad person. He said, I knew who you were. You're very unfair, so I just went ahead and he hid it, you know? And so it's a message that we send to ourselves, to the world, when we sit still. When Ruth decided to just sit still, that also brought to her soul a peace that we sang about tonight. He's not the Prince of Peach, he's the Prince of Peace. <laughs> and that's what happens to us. You know, if Ruth decided to work herself into a frenzy of anxiety, then Ruth would have been robbed from the peace that would have been her gift from coming still. See, sitting still, it's not a passive yoga meditation where you have this mindless disengagement with reality. Sitting still, what she was telling her is a rest, but it's a special rest. It's called rest in the Lord. Psalm 37, 7, Psalm 37, 7. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not because of him who prospers in the way. The word for rest in that verse means keep silent. Keep silent. Rest in the Lord is just keeping silent with an assurance. What's the assurance? The decision has already been made in heaven, and we're just waiting to see what the decision is. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was called for jury duty. So I was with the jurors, and all the jurors had to leave the court and stay in the hallway while the judge made his decision. And then after he made his decision on this particular item here, then all the jurors were called back into the courtroom. That's what it means to rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord is where we are outside the courtroom and the decision has been made and we're just waiting to find out what it is from heaven. What's the decision that God's made? This chapter starts with Naomi saying that she wanted Ruth to have rest and this is the ultimate rest that Ruth could have, which is a rest in the Lord. To sit still is to have a special guard, a special guard. It says in Philippians 4.7, Philippians 4.6 rather, Philippians 4.6. Be careful for nothing, means don't be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California, Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org, tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. 